Hello and welcome to episode two of The East Meets the West. I am your host, Rigor. Today, we have a very special guest star, the man, the myth, Mr. Derek M. Cook of Monster Kid Radio. And Derek and I are going to discuss two awesome movies. One is the Shaw Brothers film called Crippled Avengers. And the other is a spaghetti western, perhaps one of the greatest spaghetti westerns of all time. It's from 1966, and it's called Django. Now, uh, before we begin the show, I'd like to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way here. Um, Our podcasts, The East Meets the West and Then Is Now, can be heard uh, pretty much on every podcasting app that you might have, whether it be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, that sort of thing. You can also find out more about us as well as our other videos and fun stuff that we do over at havenpodcasts.com. And if you want to leave some feedback for this episode, our email address is theeastmeetsthewest at gmail.com. And if you'd like to also leave us a voicemail that will play on the air, our number is 978-432-9079. So we've got a big episode ahead of us, and it's a little bit longer than usual. So without any further ado, let's start the East Meets the West, Episode 2. Okay, welcome back to The East Meets the West. I am Rigor, and joining me today as guest co-host is the hardest working man on the internet today, YouTuber, author, and host of Monster Kid Radio. It's Mr. Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show, Derek. <laughs> hardest working man in podcasting, man. <laughs> I guess sometimes it feels that way, but sometimes it doesn't. I, I totally appreciate the compliment, I think. <laughs> Oh, man, I I am so honored to have you here today. And if the listeners don't know who you are, Derek, they're going to have to either check out episode five of Then Is Now for our in-depth interview, which is not comprehensive. We're going to have to do a part two of that. But um, they can also check out your podcast, which is called Monster Kid Radio. Derek, tell the listeners where they can find you. Okay, this is where I get into the the spiel. Monster Kid Radio is the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. We've been going for over a decade now. Every week we put out a new episode uh, late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, and uh, every episode is about a classic monster movie or a topic relevant to classic or not so classic monster movies. I have somebody come on the show. I'll have Rigor come on at some point. We need to make that happen. Don't let me forget. (laughs) Uh, We talk about a monster movie. We talk about why we love these movies. It's all about the fandom of these movies. We try to keep it pretty positive and upbeat and man, I've been having a blast doing it. I mean, obviously I've been doing it for 10 (laughs) years, but I don't see myself ending the show anytime soon. It's going to be going for a long time. It's so much fun. It's over at monsterkidradio.net if people want to check it out. That's awesome. And like I said in our interview, I think you've got another 50 years ahead of you, Derek. (laughs) You know, I always worry that I'm going to run out of movies because, you know, the show's about these classic and not-so-classic monster movies that don't exist anymore. There's kind of a cutoff. I use 1968 as my soft cutoff. Every once in a while, I dip into movies that came out in the late 60s, early 70s, or even beyond, but... You know, I always worry I'm going to run out of films because there's a finite amount. Right. But then I look on the Internet Movie Database and I do some digging and then I realize, oh, wait, there's like 10 movies by this actor that I love that I've never even heard of. So, yeah, I I keep finding new and new things to talk about. That's so (laughs) awesome. It's so awesome. So uh, uh, on that level, considering the fact that you're, you know, talking about monster movies and horror movies and all that, you're here now 
on The East Meets the West, where we talk about Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Westerns. Um, so we're going to look for even more different movies that um, than what you talk <laughs> about. <laughs> so can you... Like, I need more movies to add to my to-watch list, man. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, we all have that time to do that. Um, can you tell us, can you tell the audience your experience with uh, both types of films, Shaw Brothers and Spaghetti Westerns? And I do have a question for you, too. Every time I try to talk about this to people, I'm like, well, we've got movies from the Shaw Brothers and we've got Spaghetti Westerns. But Spaghetti Westerns is a genre. The Shaw Brothers is a production company. Is there a word I can use to just sort of, you know, throw them both into one sentence? <laughs> oh, boy. I have no idea. My, my boy, my experience with Shaw Brothers is very limited very limited. I think the first time I saw anything Shaw Brothers related was a co-production with Hammer Films with The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. And that may be about it. I, of course, knew what Shaw Brothers was and why they're important and, I mean, super prolific and influential. But my experience with that type of cinema, very limited. So I, I oh boy, I can't help you out there on that one. <laughs> as far as spaghetti westerns go, uh, you know, and sometimes you hear it called Euro Western or um, well, there's other terms for it, too. But I mean, I think Spaghetti Western is the most accepted term for this type of film. It's something that I've had a lot of fascination with for a very long time. And it's one of those things, like I was just saying earlier, you discover like maybe 10 different movies that you never even heard of with spaghetti Westerns, you start digging and you're going to find so many movies out there to enjoy and watch. And I certainly haven't watched them all. I mean, I don't know if anybody can watch them all because there's so many of them out there. Uh, but I adore them. I, I really like them, especially when they're the more grim and gritty type uh, spaghetti Westerns. You can get kind of comedic. Sometimes you can get, uh, very melodramatic, sometimes just like the one we're talking about today. Gets a little over-the-top violent, and I'm not like, oh, I like violence, but I do like them a little more dark and gothic, and that's kind of my background with Spaghetti Westerns. I, I did some work with a film studio a few years ago, uh, not a production company, but a studio that actually owned uh, a lot of films, and a lot of those movies were Spaghetti Westerns, Euro Westerns, and European cinema right. from the 60s and 70s. And working there, I learned so much more about these Spaghetti Westerns. I learned more about the movie that we're talking about today, uh, and, and just so many other titles, and man, I just love it. I know I talk about monster movies every week on my podcast, but man, to have an opportunity to talk about these types of movies here... Dude, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And do you find that the themes in Spaghetti Westerns and, and particularly the Shaw Brothers movies, are the, there's kind of a crossover there, wouldn't you say? You know, I was going to say that uh, when we started to get into it. Like I said, my Shaw Brothers background, very limited. And I knew that a lot of Asian cinema influenced a lot of pop culture like here in the states alone you know you can't have star wars without you know some of those movies happening over there and i, I knew that also the, some of the westerns drew some influence from some of those movies but man i saw a lot of western isms 
in uh, the Crippled Avengers. Yes. This time around. Yeah. It was fascinating to me to see that. And now I finally get it. When you told me about wanting to do this podcast, I thought, okay, that sounds cool. There are movies that I you know, would love to talk about more and learn more about, but are they connected? Well, Rigor likes them. So, you know, sure, they're connected. Now I get it. Right. Now I get why you're doing it, because they do have a lot of similarities. Uh, the theming, the way the stories are constructed, the way the characters are put, brought together, uh, the single-mindedness mission of the characters when they are doing something like that. It's just fascinating to see the connections. Yes, it's absolutely. And it's funny because I, when I try to describe them, like sometimes if I'm doing a promo or whatever, I'm like, well, you got the Shaw Brothers movies and they're about loyalty and honor and vengeance. And then I'm thinking about the those spaghetti westerns and they're kind of about the same thing. So, you know, we're kind of crossing over here, which is which is fun. And that's why we're here today. So um, we're going to start off with a Shaw Brothers movie which is sort of what we do. It's the East meets the West. So we usually do an uh, Eastern film first. Um, and uh, we're all here on a journey of discovery. I mean, I literally created this podcast because I wanted to hear about not just martial arts films of the 70s, but the Shaw Brothers. I wanted to know about them. And so uh, bear with me, Derek. I'm just going to impart a little bit of information here, and you may not, may or may not be aware of this. Um, and I'm going to do that, and then we'll jump into the film. Does that sound good to you? Man, I can't wait to hear it. Like I said, I don't know very much about them, so I'm super eager to learn, <laughs> sir. Awesome. So the Shaw Brothers was a company that started in the 1920s, and it was one of those time periods where, I don't know if you recall, remember seeing theaters called the Paramount? You know, back when I'm familiar. We were yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. um film companies used to not only make films, but they owned theater chains. There was the Paramount, there was, you know, uh I don't know if there was one called the Warner, but they all had these um chains where they would release their films. So the same thing happened in China, in uh especially in Hong Kong in the nineteen twenties, and the Shaw Brothers family ran a company that did the same thing. But um, by 1958, you had the brothers. You had Runjay, Runday, Runmay. So it was Runjay, Runday, and Runmay Shaw. They all moved to Hong Kong and decided in 1958 to form a new organization. They let their fourth brother, Run Run, start the company. So you've got you've got Run Run, Runjay, Runday, and Runmay, and they're all running this company in 1958. And they they decided to start making movies. And they churned out like all kinds of films. But it was the martial arts epics that sort of defined their business. And they had a film by the, you know, all right, so that was what, 1958? By 1972, they had a film called King Boxer. And that was a huge hit over here. It's sort of credited with starting the martial arts craze of the 70s in the United States. And then... um. It had a simple plot. It was one of those ones where it, you had this diabolically sadistic villain and then a hero seeking revenge, and he got help from a wise martial arts master. And that's one of those films that... Um, I'm sorry, one of those plots that sort of defined the martial arts films of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So the Shaw Brothers, they ended up having this huge studio. It was called Movie Town. 
had over 1,300 permanent employees, and their worldwide success was, it was undeniable. You know, their films blended, you know, these larger-than-life characters with fast-paced action and creative practical effects and uh, all this stuff. But, you know, essentially, they were kung fu movies, but you had a good helping of comedy and, in some cases, romance thrown in. And it just made these movies stand out from the other movies, especially the stuff that Hollywood was churning out. They weren't putting out these kind of films. Uh, The Shaw Brothers was putting out these films. In fact, they had, um, they used this sort of, um, how do I describe it? It was a wider aspect ratio and they called it Shawscope. And so if you, <laughs> yeah. And it, nice. if you watch like their logo at the beginning of a lot of their movies, it looks like the Warner Brothers logo because um, I mentioned in the last episode something called diasporic cinema. That's D I. A-S-P-O-R-A-C, which basically means uh, it was Run Run Shaw who said, yeah, we want to make movies, but we want to also spread our um, the way we do things to the rest of the world, which means um, where the movies had honor and loyalty and, um, you know, all these like great characteristics that the good guys had in their films. They wanted to spread that to the rest of the world. So the Shaw brothers, I think they succeeded in that. You know, they really put all this stuff out there and said, these are our movies, but this is our culture and this is what we want to share with you. I mean, what do you think from just, just seeing what you've seen so far of Shaw brothers movies? Does that make sense to you, Derek? Oh, sure. And you can't help but know once you finished watching like the Crippled Avengers. And and like I said, my experience, very, very limited. So that's the one I'm going to go to. Um, The way the stories are constructed, the way you kind of see the I hate to use the phrase hero's journey because that's a very Joseph Campbellian uh, Western way of thinking of it. Right. right? But it it does have a, a a pattern a tempo that you can tell is rooted in the heritage of their storytelling of the storytelling of that part of the world you can pick up on these beats these story beats these character beats what's important the the way the relationships come together you talk about loyalty and honor yeah i totally see that here and why that's important and why honor is important and you really get that from this film. And I could, I'm very excited to hear that that seems to be part of the DNA of all of their films. So that, that that's very exciting because it means I've got even more movies I can look forward to watching. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And in fact, the two films that we're talking about today, one is, of course, Shaw Brothers and the other is a Spaghetti Western. I think they all have sort of a similar theme and we'll get, We'll get to that at a later point. So let's talk about our Shaw Brothers film for today. The first film that we're going to talk about, it's called, uh, well, it's not The Crippled Avengers. It's called Crippled Avengers. And no, it's not the Hulk with no arms or Professor X and Daredevil in the Avengers. Although. (laughs) Now now I can't get that image (laughs) out of my head. Um, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, boy. Wow. Well, Daredevil might be a part of this because one of the characters is 
kind of similar. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but it's the Crippled Avengers. It was released on December 21st, 1978. <laughs> You know, all right, so I watched this on Amazon Prime. Uh, and I watched the English dub version, but the second time I watched it, which was like the other day, um, I put the English subtitles on, and that actually helped me with the character names, although it made them a little more confusing. Was this the first time you'd seen the film, or and how oh, yeah. did you watch it? Yeah, this was a very first time watch for me, and you told me it was on Amazon Prime, which made it real easy for me to watch because I don't have a lot of these movies in my you know home collection, and you know getting my hands on these might prove a little difficult. So thank you for directing me to Amazon Prime. That is how I watched it. I was going to ask you, though, about the language. Uh, I know that a lot of the Kung Fu movies, and this also happened with the Spaghetti Western, so there's another connection, that a lot of the dialogue was just kind of recorded haphazardly and then was dubbed in later, uh, either because they didn't have the technology for it, they couldn't silence everything, like I know a lot of the Kung Fu movies. There's a lot of natural sound happening around the sets, you know, planes flying overhead, cars outside or whatever. So they have to redub the dialogue anyway. And with the Spaghetti Westerns, a lot of times it was just, ah, speak whatever language you speak when you do the lines and we'll dub it for whatever market we're sending it to later. Right, right. So I I, I was going to ask you about that with the Crippled Avengers and with the Shaw Brothers movies. Were there multiple language releases for these things? Um, There were several releases around the world with different titles, but I think... I'm pretty sure that what we saw was the accurate version. Um, I did, like I said, I did watch it with the subtitles, but um, the the only difference that I found in the subtitles was not what they were saying, but the character names. And uh, I can go into that in a little bit once. Oh no! Yeah, it gets really confusing. Wow! (laughs) Wow! Um, Yeah, I mean, and and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. for somebody who doesn't watch a lot of these movies, I did have a hard time keeping some people straight as it is. They're all dressed similarly. They all have the same haircut. They all have the same awesome sideburns. I can't imagine having a different set of names thrown at me on top of everything else. Right, right. And it's pretty much like the four or five main guys that just, they look very similar because of the hair, because of the outfits. You know, you got all these other characters and they all look different. So... It's not really racist to say that it was kind of hard to tell some of these guys apart. Sure. And in fact, I was trying to remember who they were from watching uh, The Five Deadly Venoms. 
So um, what we're going to do is we're going to put a list of the actors and the characters. And I'm going to have some notes uh, included there, uh, which also includes the fact that um, whether or not they were in the Five Deadly Venoms. And if they were, I'm going to say who they played in that movie. And we're not going to worry about that movie right now. Uh, but we do have some alternate titles for this movie. In the U.S., it was called Mortal Kombat with a C, not with a K. Oh, wow. Um, it, yeah. It was also called Avengers Handicapped, which just sounds like a hilarious, uh, you know, Marvel cartoon. <laughs> oh, no. And it was also called The Return of the Five Deadly Venoms, which I think caused a lot of confusion because you had four or five of the actors from Five Deadly Venoms in this movie, but it has nothing to do with the Five Deadly Venoms. It is not a sequel. These actors play completely different characters, and it's it's just interesting to see that they would go, well, that did, you know, Five Deadly Venoms did so well here. We'll call this the return of the Five Deadly Venoms. But it doesn't relate. It's it's a completely different story. And if you sat down and watched it, even back in the 70s, you'd go, oh, no, that has nothing to do with what I just saw. <laughs> well, and we're going to see that mirrored also with the spaghetti westerns and heck even the kaiju films did this uh you know this That's is something true. when distributors got their hands on some of these movies um and i know this isn't what we're talking about at all today but in germany a lot of the kaiju films had the word frankenstein in the title because of right you know franken you know the frank the, the giant frankenstein movie they did for whatever reason they decided frankenstein meant giant monster uh, <laughs> So yeah, you have yeah. all these Godzilla meets Frankenstein <laughs> types movies, which would be awesome to see. But yeah, I totally get it. And and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, when it comes to Django here in a little bit. But that's oh, it's interesting. It's got to be totally confusing. Um, and I'm trying to imagine, like, if I was a kid going to, like, uh, you know, a theater you know, on 42nd Avenue in New York or whatever, you know, there's this new title of this the Return of the Five Deadly Venoms, but I already saw Crippled Avengers. I'd be like, oh, man, come on, you know? Like, <laughs> It's so true. And they, you know, it was just one of those tropes of the 70s where they would go, well, that movie didn't do that well. Let's retitle it and put it back out again. You know what I mean? Because we didn't have yeah. home video. Yeah. You know, so they could fool us with that. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So uh, before I'm going to do the synopsis for this movie, um, but I want to talk. I'm trying to think if I should talk about the actors first. I think, all right, yes. So I'm going to do that, and then um, I'm going to talk about the actors, and I might mention, all right, so the movie title is Crippled Avengers. So a bunch of the, the characters in this movie are crippled or handicapped, as they say today. So I'm going to like talk about the actors a little bit here. Um, if you're playing at home, you can follow along with what I'm going to put in the show notes. And then uh, we'll go from there. So I'll start with the cast. Um, and some of this was really difficult because, you know, they every place that I looked things up for this movie, and it wasn't just the Internet. It was books, too. You had uh, names where the first name and last name, like for us, it's pretty easy. You know, Roger Froyland, Derek Cook, it's your first name and last name, it's really easy to understand. But in foreign languages, sometimes they don't come across that way. And sometimes they're swapped. 
the first name and the last name. So um, trying to make this as not confusing as possible for the listeners. But, um, you know, we had things like Quan uh, Tai Chan was written as Chen Quan Tai or Lu Feng was written as Feng Lu. So uh, what I've decided to do with this, and if, I hope it's okay with you, Derek, is I've looked at the Hong Kong movie database, and I'm going to go by what they say the names are. Does that work for you? Hey, man, it's your show. It's all good. <laughs> I'll follow your lead on this one. All right, cool. Yeah, and, and I'm trying, honestly, I'm trying to not make this as confusing as possible for the audience. So let's go over our cast. We've got the villain. He runs the Black Tiger Clan, and uh, the actor is named Chen Quan Tai, and he plays Dao Tian Du. But when I watched it on Prime, and you probably had the same experience, his name was Tu Tin To. So throughout the movie, they kept calling him Tu, even though it's written as Dao, D-A-O. So I think for the for discussion of the film, we're going to call him Tu. Does that work? Sure. Okay, then you've got um, who I consider sort of the main character of the good guys. You got what four or five good guys here? They're all crippled, Um, and we'll find out about that as we talk about the plot. You got Philip Kwok Chung Fung, so I'm gonna call him Philip Kwok because he he's got like fifteen he goes by. So Philip Kwok, he was in the Five Deadly Venoms, and um, he plays Chen Shun. Um, but when I watched it on Amazon, they called him Lin Wing. So, uh, I don't know, but we're going to call him blind. He's the guy that goes blind. He played lizard in the five venoms. <laughs> yeah. So okay. it, it just makes it a little bit easier because even like in my first watching, I'm like, okay, he's the blind guy. He's the guy with no legs. You know what I mean? I had to kind of go through and like, think about who they were. Sure. No, that. That, that's uh, I was wondering how we were going to do yeah. it. That's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. So, all right. So Philip Kwok plays blind. He was lizard in the Five Venoms. Then we've got Lo Meng, uh, not Lo Main, Lo Meng. He was the he's the blacksmith character, who is called Wei Jai Ji. Although um, uh, what I saw on the um, on the Prime and on the um, subtitles was Ah Wei or Wei Da Ti. So it's really confusing. He's the guy that ends up going deaf and dumb, or deaf and mute, as they call it nowadays. Um, he played Toad in the Five Venoms, so we're going to call him Deaf. And it, uh, we'll get into that because there's a kind of actually really cool scene when he first becomes deaf. Um, then we've got another actor named Sun Chen. He played a character called uh, Hu Akyu, or Akwei in the movie, uh, which was kind of confusing also. But he's the guy who loses his legs, so we're going to call him Legs. So we've got Blind, Deaf, and Legs so far. And uh, Sun Chen, he played the Scorpion in The Five Venoms. So we've got three actors from The Five Deadly Venoms. Then there was the actor Chang Sheng, and he played Wang Yi. And in every version I watch of this movie, he was called Wang Yi. So that was awesome. Um, He... He's the character that okay. ends up being called an idiot or he's crazy. Um, he was, if you saw the five deadly venoms, he was the sixth venom who went on to look. Um, he was on the mission to find the other five, 
which, yeah, that whole movie we're not even going to talk about because that was last episode. But we've also got an actor called Lu Feng. Now, he played Dao Chang. Dao Chang was a school friend of Tu Tin To, the main villain. Um, Lu Feng played the centipede in the Five Deadly Venoms. He was not one of the main characters, but he was the dude that kept wearing the cape. And then he'd go, oh, yeah, I want to fight you. I'm super strong. He'd, like, drop his cape and then engage in combat. Mm, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Then we have okay. uh, Johnny Wang Longway. He was Keeper Wan. If you recall, Wan, or he was also called Lin Young, but Wan was his name. He was sort of the second in command of Two, the main villain. He was the guy that kind of looked like him, but he didn't have gray in his temples. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. And he would go around and, you know, he would try to keep the peace. And the, the birthday was coming up, and we'll get into that in the in the, um, in the plot summary. Uh, a couple other actors here. We got Yang Swing, who was Master Jiu Gaofeng. I, honestly, I don't recall who that was. <laughs> we got Ching Miao, played Master Jing Ying. We got Yu Tai Ping, who was the archer, Archer Lin. If you remember Mr. Lin, he was the dude that had this... He's got this tiny little bow, and he would shoot these... Oh, right, yeah. Um, like, ball bearings. Sure, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was really awesome. And then we got Tony Tam Chanto. He played Master Law Bo. Um, and we're going to just round off the actors here. Uh, we've got Helen Poon Bing Sung, who played Du's wife. She kind of bites it at the beginning, which we'll get into. Uh, Dick Way was also in um, The Five Deadly Venoms, and he was one of the tigers. He was tiger. They listed them as tiger number one, tiger number two, and tiger number three. He was tiger number one. Um, and the tigers were uh, basically two, the, the main bad guy, too. They were his um, clan, or his uh, pupils, I guess. So you got Dick Way, Jamie Luck Kim Ming, and Stuart Tamton. They were all played tigers one, two, and three. And the reason I bring this up is because last episode we talked about the five deadly venoms and we've got five, actually we've got seven of the actors from that movie in this movie, but the five um, actors that are in this movie, I should say, um, it's not a sequel, but they acted together in several movies and they were actually called... Um, they were called the Venom Mob or the Five Weapons Guys because um, there were, in their movies where they acted together, there were often extended weapons fighting scenes. Has nothing to do with Five Deadly Venoms. It's not a sequel. But so I'm just going to reiterate this and I'll try not to bore the audience. Uh, we've got Philip Kwok, Lo Meng, Lu Feng, Sun Chen, and the guy who played the sixth Venom in the Five Deadly Venoms, Chang Sheng. Those five were in this, and they continued to make movies together. Like I said, they were known as the Venom Mob. Okay, so uh, Sun Chen, the guy that plays Legs in this movie, he was sort of, he was the odd man out because his specialty was just Taekwondo. You know, all the others drew from uh, weapons training and opera training and kung fu, and he didn't blend well. So if you notice, he's he's the guy called Legs. He didn't do a lot of spinning and acrobatics. He'd do a kick and they'd cut away. I don't know if you, if Derek, if you notice this, they kept making his character kind of go off screen. I noticed that a lot. Film. It's like, you go over here. We might need your feet later. Yeah, I noticed that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so that was Legs, Sun Chen, who played Legs. And then we had Shang Chang, who was the idiot, but he was well-known for not only using double weapons, but also tumbling and his athletic prowess. I mean, he was just all over the place in this movie. In fact, he I thought he was very cartoonish, um, which in a good way which was really awesome where he would just literally like jump and tumble and spin and dive through a hoop and all this stuff. And I, I thought his character uh, and his acting, he did a great job of being serious and then being silly. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I don't know if, yeah, I'll mention it now. Um, I'm watching this and all of the movements here, man, the physicality that everybody had. That's just nuts, oh, yeah. man. I, I don't have, and I watch a lot of like professional wrestling and things like that, man. These, they got nothing on these guys, man. It was just pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, it's been often like compared to like a ballet or an opera. And it really is just like that. Cause it's just so amazing to watch these guys. So our, um, one, two, third actor, we've got Lu Fang and he's the guy I said was Tu's school friend. He's well known for using a stick with a giant blade on one end and a spear on the other end, but he doesn't really use that in this film. He's just sort of this super strong dude. Then we've got another actor named Lo Meng who is, um, he was known for his physical strength and brute force, uh, and he learned all that from Kung Fu. And Lo Meng was, oh, he's the blacksmith. He's the guy, he's deaf. And then Philip Kwok, who, like I said, I kind of consider him the main character in the movie. He's he's the blind guy. He's known for pretty much doing everything that all the others could do. So, um, all right, I'm just going to go real quick because I don't want to bore everyone. With um, you've got the cinematographer was uh, Cho Y K. He did sixty four films, which is pretty impressive. Uh, the art director was Johnson Sao Chung Sheng. He did two hundred and twelve films from nineteen fifty nine to nineteen eighty three. So these people making these movies, wow. they were experienced. Wow, yeah. That's why this movie is so entertaining. You've got the film editor, Chang Sing Lung. He did 628 films. It's crazy. The costume designer, Lu Chu, I'm sorry, Lu Chi Yu. I don't know if it's a he or a she, but the costume designer, Lu Chi Yu, did 264 films. And Derek, you know what? One of the films that um, this person designed the costumes for was The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. <laughs> right on. Isn't that awesome? That's great. <laughs> it's oh, I love that movie, and I want to talk about that movie too. Um, and then we've got the film composer, which um, I was going to mention at some point. I really enjoyed the music of this movie, which I didn't notice the first time I watched it, but the second time I did, I started to notice it. It's a guy named Frankie Chan Fan K. He made the music. He composed music for 371 films. He acted in 24 films, directed 21, produced 18, and then he was the executive producer and action director on a bunch of other films. It's it's insane how wow. much experience these people who made these movies had. And a lot of them, including the five actors who are in this, um, at this point in time, they were pretty much just actors. But moving forward they became action directors which means you had the director of the film but you had an action sequence and then someone stepped in to sort of direct that does that make sense sure yeah it it, 
it sounds like they had a like a mini studio system going on over there and, and just this troop of not just performers but technicians behind the camera that just cranked a lot of these movies out just getting more and more experience getting better and better and better as they go right right absolutely um, so we've got the director, which is Che Chang, um, which I did talk about him in the last episode. Uh, we could do a whole show on this guy alone. I mean, he's written 87 films. He's directed 94 films, as well as producing and writing and sometimes acting in movies. He was pretty much the undisputed master of martial arts action movies. Um, and he had this sort of... Um, how do I describe it? He had this robust and stylized... Uh, way of presenting these action sequences. Um, did you did you notice that in this movie? You know, I did, and again, and I'm, I'm sorry, I sound like a broken record. Not having a lot of experience That's with okay. these kinds of movies, I don't, I didn't know if that was just part and parcel part of this particular subgenre, or if it was something specific to this particular group of filmmakers. I thought the the fight scenes in this, the action scenes in this. And not just the fighting. I mean, even the training montages were pretty epic. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And um, Chang, uh, Che Chang, he started in 65 with the One-Armed Swordsman. That was sort of the movie that put him on the map because it made a million bucks at the box office. And um, he did a whole bunch, uh, like The Assassin, The Golden Swallow, Vengeance, the new One-Armed Swordsman. Uh, boxer from Shangtung, the Blood Brothers, but he basically sort of laid it out as to how these action sequences should look. Um, in 74, he actually had his own company called Chang Films. Um, I'm not under, I haven't had a chance to really look into what happened here, but apparently it didn't do well. He ended up back with the Shaw Brothers in 76, and that's where he continued to make these movies with the Shaw Brothers till about 1986. Uh, but he did get a Lifetime Achievement Award um, with the Hong Kong Film Critics in 97. All right, so shall we get into the synopsis sure. of the film, Derek? Sure. Okay. I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible. My <laughs> got a, lot of, a couple of pages here. I'll try not to... Um, like, uh, Derek, like you and I talked about off-show, off Nick Brown is the really... This plot synopsis guy. Oh yeah, yeah, no, he, <laughs> but he's, he's not here man. today. He is the man. Yeah, he could tell you a movie. You don't even ever have to watch the movie. You could just listen to his plot synopsis and enjoy the film. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be uh, like I said succinct here. So it's called the Crippled Avengers, and uh, it begins. We get this wealthy guy. We're gonna call him Two, T U, just because, um, for you know ease of doing this thing. Uh, we don't know this at first, and we find this out later in the film, but he's like this awesome, wealthy, super nice guy. And um, he's probably the world's foremost deadly martial artist, but he's this super nice guy. And apparently he's away. So his rivals show up at his house while he's gone, and in order to send a message to him, they chop off his son's arms, or his forearms, and his wife's legs. And of course the wife doesn't survive. So two comes home, and sees what happens, and the wife dies, and he's just all upset. And he ends up becoming this bitter, heartless guy. Um, and all he wants to do is just inflict pain on the rest of the world. So, um, I guess this was kind of we a weird transition. 
because it looks like his son, uh, who's called Chu Cho Chang, when he grows up, Chu finally gives him metal arms. But um, Chu sort of says, well, I've had six arms prior to this, and these are the best. So now he's grown up. He's got these these metal arms, or their forearms, I guess I should say. And he can shoot darts out of the fingertips. And the fists can also extend about a foot or two beyond where his his arms reach. So I guess that works in terms of damaging an opponent. And two is basically the point where, man, if you walk down the street and you say the wrong word to him, he's just going to exact harm upon you. You know? <laughs> it's like... Yeah. It's like stinky and um, Abbott and Costello. I'll harm you. <laughs> but... So, uh-huh. <laughs> along, <laughs> that's all I could think of was I'll harm you. Oh man! But so along comes this guy. He's a hawker, I guess. He sells stuff, and he he sees two kind of going about his business in the town. And and actually, one of the main places that the movie takes place in is it's kind of a restaurant, but it's also an inn, right? Yeah, that's the vibe that I got. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of stuff happens here, and this guy selling stuff is just like, who is this two dude? And he's pretty, you know, he sucks. And of course, they decide that he's seeing things that uh, aren't proper. So the son Chu takes his eyes out with his metal fingers. So now um, this guy that was selling stuff is now blind. So he's the guy we're going to call blind, played by Philip Kwok. Then you get this local blacksmith who sort of was around there for that. Um, he doesn't. He's also of the mind that he doesn't like the way that two rules the city, and um, he starts to speak out about it. And then two brings him back to his place. Says, "Hey, drink this." Yeah. It makes him mute, but then he, I don't know, the, for whatever reason, they hit him on the head and make him deaf. So th- then this third guy comes to town. He's just sort of a drifter, and he bumps into the son called Chu. So Chu ends up having this guy's legs cut off because apparently he can't stand still or he falls into people. So you've got these three crippled guys, or handicapped guys as they call them today, but they manage to find each other, and they sort of band together in the blacksmith shop. Um, then you've got this this kung fu master named Wang Yi. He comes to town and he, he sees the kids sort of tormenting these poor cripple guys. So he, not only does he break that up, but he says, you know what? I'm going to get revenge for you guys and I'm going to go attack too and I'm going to stop him from making you know cripple people like you. But of course he goes there and Wang Yi goes there and um, he loses the fight, and then he end up putting this thing on his head where they, I can't even describe it, It's it, they, they twist the chain on it, and it just keeps tightening and tightening and tightening on his head until ultimately he's just, like, crazy. Um, they call him an idiot or crazy in uh, both words in the film, but he just loses his mind, and he becomes this weird sort of childlike character that just jumps around and would rather play on the ground than actually fight people. Um, so ultimately the four guys end up, you know, hooking up going, well, what the hell are we going to do? And um, Legs decides to look on uh, Crazy's body to see if there's, you know, any kind of identification and he finds a letter. And I did notice this in the, um, 
in the subtitles when I watched it the other day, it said Master of Hawk Mansion. And so they figure out that uh, it's most likely Wang Yi's master. So they go to the building or the place where Wang Yi's master is, the Hawk Mansion. It's there where the master kind of realizes what happened to these four guys, in particular his former pupil Wang Yi. And, you know, Wang Yi is already a master of Kung Fu of some sort, but he decides to teach the others Kung Fu as well. And he explains to them that while they're, they may be physically impaired, they can learn to overcome it. Um, while the villain, too, uh, he's mentally crippled, and he's never going to get over that. He's just, his wife was killed, his son was maimed, and he's just out of his mind. He, so he's just going to be evil no matter what. So you've got this training sequence, but it's not really a montage. It's actually... Derek, would you consider this like a third of the film or at least a good chunk of the film? It is a big chunk of the film. And I think I may even have said montage earlier. If I did, I apologize because that's really not what it is. It is part of the quest. It is an essential part of the story. Right. And you've got the idiot who um, he trains with with deaf and legs and he can't stand it because they hurt him. But when he trains with a blind guy... He likes it. He's like, you don't hurt me. And they do this um, amazing ballet of sort of sparring with these metal rings and uh, doing it no justice here because I can't describe it. But they've got these large metal rings and they're like both holding on to it. And then one jumps through it and then one puts it on the other guy. And it's this insane scene where uh, I don't know. Do you have any words for this? Because I can't describe it. It's gorgeous, man. Yeah, I totally get it now when they say they went to opera school or whatever, because at this point, I mean, it is a beautiful next level sequence. Right. Right. And it's, it's, oh, I can't even, it's just like, it's almost like candy for the eyes. Like just to watch it is so enjoyable. So they do this for about three years. And then um, after that, they're they're more of a team than ever. They're almost like a family, in my opinion. And uh, you got two, the bad guy. He's the master of what's called Tiger Style. And he's going to have his 45th birthday party pretty soon. So the four cripple guys devise a plan to take him down. Blind's going to go ahead. He's going to pretend to be a fortune teller while Deaf will follow close behind. Then um, you've got the other two on deck to come in at a later point. So you've got... Oh, and oh, I wanted to mention this too. Did you notice, Derek, um, uh, Philip Kwong, who plays, or Philip Kwok, who plays um, blind, he does this thing with his left eye where it looks towards his nose, and he looks like he truly is blind. Oh, yeah. I thought that was an interesting uh, way to kind of keep, it, for me, it worked because it helped me be able to delineate who was who a little bit because right. there are these small physical differences between them all. And yeah, I was able, I, I appreciated that as a performance, but then I also appreciated that as an audience member who's not used to this kind of cinema to be able to kind of keep track of who is who. Yeah, it worked very well. And um, so, um, so we've got Juan who's two's right hand man and he starts to call in people for help. Uh, one particular, this guy named Mr. Lin that we mentioned earlier, he has this skill where he shoots ball bearings from this tiny little bow. Um, 
And Mr. Uh, Juan actually just he just wants to make everything perfect for the birthday party. So making things perfect means making sure uh, interlopers don't jump in. In particular, these four cripple guys who have been gone for three years and now they're starting to show up. Um, we got uh, Def gets there ahead of time. And he's hiding upstairs. They realize that Blind is um, is here because he shows up as a um, as a fortune teller, and then leaves. And so um, Def's hiding upstairs in the inn or the restaurant, and he's waiting. And um, Wan and his guys just sort of decide to wait in quiet because they know, all right, well this guy's blind. If we're quiet, he can't hear us. Um, so he shows uh, a blind shows up, and they try to uh, like let him go through. But then uh, Def decides, oh crap, they're going to attack him, and he starts to make noise. And it was this interesting juxtaposition because Def can't hear, but he's doing things to make noise. And in fact, when he first became Def, I should have mentioned this earlier. Um, there's this amazing sequence where he's running down the street. And there is no sound at all in the movie. It's just silent. And they use that quite a bit through the movie. Did you notice that, Derek? That, like, he... I did. I thought that was a really neat way to, again, tell us who was who. But it's also a really cool way to uh, just kind of illustrate what he was going through. I really liked that yeah. a lot. Yeah, they did that. And they do a lot of that. And I think um, at this point in the... Um, in the synopsis, I'm just going to say that Dao Chang, who uh, he was also called Chu Ka, Chu Ka Fong, he's the school friend of Tu's. He was one of the guys from the Five Deadly Venoms. He shows up and uh, basically tells uh, all of Wan's guys to go away. And um, he thinks he's going to go in and defeat Blind and Deaf. And he ends up getting killed because, of course, Legs shows up and uh, sticks his like metal leg in his uh, chest. So you've got a lot of stuff going on here. And I think at this point we should just stop the synopsis because I really feel that people should go out and see this movie because there's so many, not only amazing sequences, but just fun stuff in this film. Oh yeah. No, I, I think you set everything up pretty nicely. Uh, the, the final confrontation is great. Um, the way they kind of go through each step to get to the final fight is pretty darn cool. Right. Really just, man, it's so fun. It's so good. Uh, and, and I totally see this, like you were saying earlier, the themes, man, you could change this whole story to a Western setting and it would still be perfect. I mean, it's iconic. Wow. It's just so good. Absolutely. So, um, one thing I wanted to say, Derek, was that I thought the character who was deaf, he was a lot like Harpo Marx. Um, do you think he did that on purpose? Did you notice that at all? Where he'd like slap his knee and... Hmm. Interesting. No, I didn't make that connection at all. Now I can see it, though. I see it now, though. Yeah, yeah. He would just do this thing where he couldn't talk, but he would, you know, slap, slap you on the shoulder and then slap his knee. And I kept waiting for him to pull a horn out and honk it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I totally see that now. It's not something I picked up on before, but that's very cool. No, you're right. And there was one thing I noticed 
the second time watching it, which I didn't see the first time around, when uh, Wang Yi and Blind were sparring, Wang Yi, the crazy guy, he was throwing the hoops at him. And he threw one hoop in the air, and it hung there. And Blind I was going to ask it. you about that. It really... <laughs> so... <laughs> I know that sometimes with these movies, I guess, at least I've read, there's a lot of wire work and things like that. I didn't see a lot of this, but yes. that had to have been <laughs> why. Yeah. Oh, so, absolutely. It, mm. and no, no just, it just like, come on. I, I don't know. It kind of took me out there for a second. I was like, did I just see that right? And I actually backed it up. And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> there's some wire work there. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from these people. The, these guys were amazing, but yeah, I, I caught that. Oh yeah, and the the practical effects in the in these movies is just so amazing. But um, did you know that the wire work that they devised for these films ended up carrying over to the Matrix? I'm not surprised to hear you say that, because it was really well done. I'm not surprised to hear you say that at all. Wow. I don't I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure. One of the guys that worked on The Matrix and worked on The Wireworks was from the Shaw Brothers and had worked on all these films back in the 70s. Very cool. I thought also it was interesting when they were training, um, uh, the, the master kind of focused on uh, Blind's hearing. You know, he was like, he was like, okay, well, you can't see, but you can hear. And it, it really not only reminded me of Daredevil, but there was an episode of a show. Uh, oh, geez. Of course, now I can't remember the name of it. It was. Um, I can't remember, but it was a, it was a show about this guy who and the show was named after his car. So it was like Barracuda or something. But he was basically this dude that would help you um, for no for no money. But if he ever needed a favor, he would call upon you and you'd have to help him out. And there's one episode where he goes blind and he ends up finding this, of course, this Chinese master. And the guy tells him, OK, clap. And he goes, and he's like, OK, now find a wall, you know, and it was all about using his other senses to assist him because he couldn't see in that particular episode. Um, so that reminded that I was reminded of that when I was watching the uh, blind being trained but then you had deaf who was his training was if you noticed was focused on hand-eye coordination they had that um uh what was it, it was like a wheel on fire mm -hmm. that would spin and his goal was to punch through in between the spokes of the wheel and hit the ceramic thing on the back side so his was visual his was hand-eye whereas deaf was hearing i'm sorry where's blind was it was hearing right. i just thought it was interesting the way they kind of juxtaposed those trainings i thought it was pretty neat uh especially the the wheel of fire training bits um really enjoyed that and i enjoyed the uh the physical acting of of the performer as he's going through the training sequence, you can just see on his face, the determination, the shock, and just a moment of frustration as the targets get smaller and smaller and smaller. It just a really neat bit. It's something that I would have never even considered. How do you show somebody who has these uh, disabilities? How do you show somebody getting better at these? This is a great way to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, they did so much. I mean, they even, um, if you get towards the end of the movie without giving too much away, well, not even at the end of the movie, but there was a scene where there was a fight and these guys came in and they all had shields and they kept banging the shields and the shields sounded like cymbals. And it was affecting the blind guy because the sound was just overwhelming him. I thought that was very smart. Um, nothing in this movie happens by accident. The, these elements here, the way the, the villains use the extra senses that the, uh, the crippled Avengers are using against them, whether it's banging the drums or when they bring out all the mirrors and start flashing lights in the deaf person's eyes. I mean, it's, it's all very smart. And a great way to show us how they come together as a team to kind of make up for each other's um, issues. It's just really cool. One thing that I thought was really interesting, it was, I've never seen this before in a movie. It was blind and deaf character were constantly making physical contact. Um, And they explained early on that if one would literally write the Chinese symbols in the other one's palm, like if the blind, if the blind guy, he could hear stuff. So he would write onto the palm with his finger, like not really writing with ink, but just sort of making the motions with his finger. He would write the Chinese characters. So the deaf guy could understand what was going on. And they were constantly like holding hands or having their arms touching each other because I think it, it grounded both of them because it helped the blind guy to understand where he was and it helped the deaf guy to understand what was going on. This was one of my absolute favorite parts of this film was the really, so you mentioned earlier, it's kind of like they came together as a family and that's true, but I really liked the relationship between those two in particular. It felt like that relationship was probably the strongest of all four of them. And it was sweet's the wrong word for it because of what kind of movie this is, but it is, but it is right, kind right. of endearing, endearing to see that in that connection happen the way that it did. I really enjoyed that. Like I said, that was my absolute favorite part of this whole thing. The fight scenes are great. Story's great, but the relationship of those two people coming together as part of this larger family, that was my favorite part of the whole thing. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And it was this progression because when they started, the guy with no legs, before he had his metal legs, he would jump onto the back of the crazy guy. And there was no, um, there was no, oh, hey, can you, can you carry me? It was literally the crazy guy would just turn around and the other guy would jump on, you know, and they would, they would go. And they, they started as a family, like really early on, which I thought really sort of, I don't know. It just cemented them as a foursome, as a group that was going to come back the villain. Mm -hmm. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention was I thought the crazy guy, he was kind of like a cartoon character. He was almost like a Looney Tunes guy, just sort of jumping in and out of frames and just, I don't know. He was was just sort of nutty. (laughs) You you used the word cartoon earlier, and uh, I'm going to use it here because, and I agree with you, he's very much a comic, cartoony type character, but... He's still essential to the story. Um, you were mentioning the rings earlier. He does stuff with the rings later himself. And he never felt like he was just like the mascot. He always felt like he was an essential part of the team as well, or the family as well. Right. Absolutely. Did you notice, without giving away anything about the final fight, did you notice that the camera work kind of changed in the final fight? Hmm. I don't know if I really did. 
what what should again it's you don't want to give um, it away but what should i have been watching for what should i go back and check for um i can't really describe it but i just because i was watching it again yesterday and it wasn't like throughout the film uh the camera work was pretty static you would just, you know, sort of sat back and watch the action that was going on. But by the end fight, the camera was starting to move around and give you different angles and show you things from a different viewpoint. And it just got more interesting. And I was surprised by that because I, I wasn't expecting it. And I, like I said, I was watching it for the second time. And then all of a sudden it was doing these things where I just did not expect what they were doing. Okay. You know? Well, I say this all the time on my show. Darn, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, so Crippled Avengers. Uh, um, so this was your first viewing, right, Derek? Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. So I'm going to tell the audience, go out and watch it and um, watch the whole movie because we tried not to spoil it. I think we got about two-thirds of the way through. I think you should watch that film if you haven't already. And then come back because uh, after the break, we're going to talk about Django from 1966. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Monster Kid Radio. A century ago on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared. A man with a sad, impenetrable face. Django! Django, have you never loved again? that man what was his secret it's not important and if i bothered you will you accept my apology he was pitiless in revenge quick to decide and a master of every weapon a man everybody would like to have seen dead yeah his name is Django. Django, the title of a film you'll never forget. 
Django. How many men you got left? You tongue-tied? Or don't want to tell me? <laughs> Too bad, Maria. Django, an audacious man of action, capable of a tender, hopeless love which could only last a day, but a day which was worth all eternity. I'm glad I made you feel like a real woman. Very glad. I mean. Django, a new, ruthless, violent film. Featuring a great new star, Franco Nero. And a great supporting cast. second half of the east meets the west and we just talked about crippled avengers and if you haven't seen it please go out and find it it's on amazon prime as far as we know right now uh or at least as of this uh posting so the next movie we're going to talk about is a spaghetti western called django no we're not talking about django unchained the quentin tarantino film from a few years ago no we're talking about the original django from 1966 what can I say about Django? It's uh, it's different. Uh, the character of Django, he's I guess you could say he's definitely an antihero. He does things that make you go, oh, "Why did you do that, Django?" And then you go, "Oh, okay, yeah, I know, I understand why." <laughs> but at that point, it's oh, like he's, he's always got a plan. He's always got a plan. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> at that point, you're like, "Oh crap, maybe you shouldn't have done that, Django." So, uh, Derek, why don't you give us a synopsis of the film, and then after that we'll talk about the actors and the creative staff. Sure, we'll do. Uh, so, to begin with, you just said something about uh, you know the character of Django. Uh, I have a book here called Any Gun Can Play, The Essential Guide to Euro-Westerns by Kevin Grant, and I just want to quote real quick. He says that Django is more influential than Ringo and even arguably Clint Eastwood's Dollars persona in terms of his impact upon the Italian Western. And boy, is he right when he says Absolutely. that. Django had so many uh, in, impacts and influences. Anyway, so I have a plot synopsis, and uh, here we go. Great. Over what would become some of the most iconic opening title music in a Western ever, courtesy of Louise Bakalov, we meet Django, who's dressed darkly, dragging a coffin through a desolate, muddy landscape. Now, through the credits, we learn almost everything we need to know, not just about our film's protagonist, but the film's world itself. It's a dirty world. It clings to you. It works against you as you try to move through it. Nothing is easy. Django himself is determined. He's former military. He's wearing the uniform of a Union soldier, which tells us the movie takes place in or around the 1860s. Well, once we're through the opening credit music, which is awesome, Django comes across a group of Mexican bandits who've captured a woman that we'll later learn is named Maria. And she's played by Mordana. Oh, boy, I'm going to mispronounce the last name. Nosiak? 
Nuchak. Uh, she's Italian. I, I, oh, I can't speak any other language. Anyway, she's tied to a cross with her back exposed, and the Mexicans proceed to whip her while kind of yelling at her and belittling her. Django watches from afar, but before he acts, uh, the Mexicans are gunned down by a group of white men that we'll later learn are working for Major Jackson, who is an ex-Confederate officer who rules through fear and racism. Before Jackson's men can have their way with Maria, Django guns them down, uh, saving her, and together they move on to the nearest town, which is basically a muddy shell. It's basically a ghost town populated by a local bartender uh, named Nathaniel, who's played by Angel Alvarez, and a small stable of his prostitutes. Now, we learn that Major Jackson forces Nathaniel to pay him protection money. Django doesn't announce himself as a hero here to liberate the town or anything like that. He just sits quietly, orders a meal, and just seems to be biding his time. Now, there is a brief and comical, non-deadly confrontation with one of Jackson's men at the bar, after this, Django readies himself for a meeting with Major Jackson. Like I said earlier, he's always got a plan. It's like he was setting this whole thing up. Yeah. Somehow he knows from which direction Major Jackson and company will be riding into town. <laughs> I'm not sure how that <laughs> happened, but he knows which way to, they're coming. He drags his coffin behind a rather large fallen tree in the middle of the road and just waits. Now, Major Jackson and company do arrive. And that's when Django opens this coffin for the first time in the movie. And we discover that in the coffin, he's been keeping one of the most interesting looking machine guns I've ever seen in a Western. <laughs> he pulls it out and uses it to mow down almost everybody, all of Jackson's red hooded men. Oh, oh yeah. I forgot to mention, they're all wearing hoods. Remember I said that Jackson was a racist? Yeah, right. they're, they're Klansmen. Um, <laughs> and by the time <laughs> this scene is over, most of them are dead Klansmen. Jackson gets away, but Django has a plan for him too. Now Django and Nathaniel are excuse me, Django and Nathaniel are burying the dead. And while this is happening, the town is then visited by General General Hugo and his men. Now General Hugo seems to be the other force here. There's Major Jackson's men and then General Hugo and his men. General Hugo and his men are a band of Mexican bandits slash revolutionaries who can't seem to decide if they hate Jackson or whoever's in charge of Mexico at the time more. Apparently, Django and Hugo know each other, and Django tells him that he's got a plan to get more guns and even more gold for, uh, from Jackson and company. And with <laughs> Hugo's men, they raid for Chiriba, uh, which is like a little border town. They kill a bunch of Mexican soldiers and get away with the gold Major Jackson had brought to the fort. Now, even though Django just wants his cut of the money and wants to leave town after all this, Hugo insists that he stay, at least for a night, while everyone celebrates at Nathaniel's bar. Django reluctantly agrees, but only because, again, he's got a plan. He's going to sneak out in the middle of the night with the gold. He's going to take the gun out of his coffin and put the gold in the coffin and drag that out. He doesn't initially act like he wants to take Maria with him. And the opening title song told us that Django's previous love is dead and gone, and that's later confirmed during the scene where they're burying people uh, with Nathaniel in the little makeshift cemetery. Right. Maria does still manage Django to convince him to take her with him. Now, they do get away and make it as far as the same location where Django first encountered Maria at the beginning of the movie. She begs him to leave the gold behind and just go off with her to start a new life. But he refuses because that's not the plan. He wants the gold to put his former life as Django behind him. But there's an accidental rifle misfire, a startled horse, and some quicksand that all have different ideas for that gold. Django can't let the gold go, so he jumps in after the quicksand. <laughs> To get it, Maria's not strong enough to get him out of the quicksand, though. 
but General General Hugo is because he's just turned up to save Django, and boy, are they unhappy with Django stealing the gold <laughs> and then ultimately losing it. They let him know how unhappy he is, or excuse me, they let him know how unhappy they are by shooting Maria and then giving Django a reason to wear black gloves when he turns up in a cameo in Tarantino's Django Unchained. There's a reason why we don't see Franco Nero's hands in that cameo scene. It's because they do something terrible to Django's hands in this film <laughs> and leave him for dead, basically. And that's about as far as I want to go uh, with the that's plot synopsis awesome. because the rest of it is what Django does to kind of recover from all this. And, you know, it's funny because we're trying to dance around it, but what ends up happening in the rest of the movie, obviously without giving anything away, it relates to the last movie that we just talked about. Sure. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know if you did that on purpose or not. No, uh, uh, no, I did not. I kind of forgot about the ending of Django till I watched it again. Huh. Well, it was a nice mirroring. And again, it kind of speaks to some of the same themes that these particular subgenres tap into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that was a great synopsis. So Django was released, um, at least in Rome, on April 9th in 1966. And it was released here in the U.S. in December, which is kind of interesting, too, because um, uh, Crippled Avengers was released here in December as well, although it was a decade later. Um, And it was directed by Sergio Corbucci. And he's known as the second Sergio because Sergio Leone was being uh, is the first Sergio, at least in terms of directors. Mm-hmm. Um, Corbucci started directing in 1951. And um, I read that his ability to make large-scale action sequences with a minimal budget was what kept him in demand as a, uh, an assistant director initially and then a director. And um, on one assignment, he was filming in the second unit, uh, with the second unit, I should say, in Spain for a friend who was Sergio Leone. They were shooting a movie called The Last Days of Pompeii in 1959, which is really weird when we start to talk about Franco Nero at a later point. But um, Corbucci claims (laughs) his idea for the so-called spaghetti western, quote-unquote, was born because he saw the landscape of Spain with its wild horses, the extraordinary canyons, all these semi-desert-looking landscapes. And he thought it looked a lot like Mexico or Texas. And he suggested they should make an American Wild West-themed film in Spain. And then, of course, uh, Sergio Leone came out with Fistful of Dollars in 64, while Sergio Corbucci was making Django, for, and it came out in 66. So it was sort of a race as to who could create the first, quote-unquote, spaghetti western. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah, there were certainly Euro westerns before this one, but oh, absolutely. Django really kind of set the, you know, made the mold, yeah, you know? Yeah, And Corbucci, yeah. he'd done a few movies before this. He did uh, one called Duel of the Vampires. He also did uh, Castle of Blood with Barbara Steele in 61. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a couple of... Um, Films uh, Massacre at Grand Canyon and Minnesota Clay, which starred Cameron Mitchell in 64. But it really was Django in 66 that just sort of catapulted him into superstar, directed 
until yeah, really uh, just probably kinda, about 1990. Really kind of made it the thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't add that there was a third Sergio. There's actually three Sergios that are considered important yes. when it comes to the Spaghetti Western. There's Corbucci, Leone, and then Salima, who also did a lot of Euro and Spaghetti Westerns as well. Um, Thank you for that. I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they're known as the three Sergios. That's right. That's right. It's unbelievable. And, and you know, these guys are just so talented. You know, you don't see that sort of thing today with today's movies. The thing is, too, about Django, at least, um, and I mentioned at the top of this that I did some work for a film studio that had a bunch of spaghetti westerns in their library. Oh, right. And one of the jobs that I had there was to transfer some master VHS or videotape, magnetic tape from, uh, well, magnetic tape to the computer digitally, you know, capture all this stuff, uh, you know, preserve it and that sort of thing. And one thing that I noticed while I was doing that is that a lot of these, they don't have the best transfer right? They don't have the best uh, conservation when it comes to the elements that made these movies. A lot of these movies were just kind of cranked out, dumped into the, you know, into the, into the marketplace and they went and made another movie and then another movie. It's very factory-like, right? Very assembly line, right? And because of that, a lot of times the film elements weren't treated the best or saved. The thing about Django is that it has been restored. It has been cared about. And when you watch it, it is gorgeous. You really see Corbucci's, um, ability to capture some amazing images and, and sequences right again lower budget like you said but man he really milks the heck out of that town the oh, way yeah. he does the, the shootouts and, and a lot of the the back and forth not just in the shootouts but just dialogue scenes or scenes in the bar just amazing work man amazing and it's a total not reversal, but a subversion of the traditional Western, right? It's right. not a dry desert landscape. It's muddy. It's yeah. dirty. If yeah. you watch the opening title sequence, half the time it's raining on the poor guy. Yeah. It is just, <laughs> it is, it's, it's gritty and grimy and in the mud and in your face. And as far as I understand, um, uh, the plot of Django is sort of loosely based on uh, the, uh, was it the Japanese story of Yojimbo? About the uh, yeah, masterless oh. Ronin wandering you, the if landscape. You don't, yeah, if you don't see Kurosawa in this, you're, yeah. you're not paying close enough attention. There right. is so much of that in here as well. And again, that goes back to what we said at the beginning, with Kurosawa influencing not just this, but then a lot of the science fiction with Star Wars and all this other stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That can go back to the Kung Fu movies and then just it's, some pretty basic stories just in different clothing, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he doesn't ride into town on a horse. He walks into town dragging the coffin behind him. Yeah. And it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's such an iconic image. I don't think it's the first time we've seen that in fiction, uh, but it certainly is the most iconic. And I do think, though, um, uh, towards the end of the film where he's he's pulling the coffin around and dragging it out of the, like secretly out the back window and then downstairs and into the basement. And it, it was hilarious. I thought, you know, I'm like, I was literally laughing out loud going, what the heck is he doing? And it didn't, it didn't seem to mind him that this thing was like a super heavy coffin and whatever, because he had a purpose for it. 
And all right, he used the machine gun, and now we're on to the next thing, you know? I was a little, the first time I saw this, I was a little surprised that he left the machine gun behind until I realized what he was doing with that machine gun when he left it behind. Right. Uh, it, it's quite the surprise for the Mexicans. I'll just say that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Um, so let's talk about uh, Django, the actor. It was Franco Nero. Now, when I looked Franco him up, Nero. when I looked him up, it said he was a painting photographer. Do you know what the heck that is? Was he doing uh, photography for matte paintings? I, I don't really know much about the man's background. I know that he did some smaller acting roles or had some smaller acting roles before this. But the impression that I got based on my limited knowledge of Franco Nero is that Django's basically what put him in demand. Right. Right. He was an actor and he was doing photography and he was discovered actually by director John Houston, who saw him and said, hey, wait a minute. I want him in. And he was making the movie The Bible in 66. And said, mm-hmm. I want him to play Abel in the story of Cain and Abel. So Franco Nero did that. And then immediately afterwards, he did Django and all of a sudden became this worldwide star. Um, and he's, he's been in like over, I think, like 200 things. Um, he was born in Italy. But then um, his real success was on the Spaghetti Westerns. Although, you know, besides Django, he did one called Texas Adios in 66. And uh, he was in Lucio Fulci, the horror auteur. Lucio Fulci's movie, The Brute and the Beast, also in 66. Mm-hmm. Um, he, let's see, he was in a uh, film version of the musical Camelot with Vanessa Redgrave, who he ultimately married, uh, I think, like a decade or two later. He was with her, but then they got married uh, like 20 years later. Um, he was in tons of political and criminal movies. Usually, uh, these were the kind of films that criticized the Italian justice system. And you may remember him. In fact, this is where I actually knew him first was the, uh, 81 movie Enter the Ninja, where he played a <laughs> character named Cole. Do you remember that? I was going to bring that up. Yeah. He, he, he did a lot. I mean, he became known for Django, but Really, he did so many Euro crime films or Polizia films right. as well, and not as much on the Euro spy side of things, but a lot of Euro crime. He he makes quite the cool uh, rogue police officer detective in some of those movies. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, and he was. Um, but uh, yeah, no, he did Enter the Ninja too, which is really cool. And then he also has small roles in like Wild Wild Planet. Yep, and its follow up. Um, just great stuff. He played General Esperanza in um, Die Hard 2. He was the villain mm-hmm. in that. And um, uh, he was also in Force 10 from Navarone, which I just read the book from that, actually. Oh, um, right on. Yeah. And the one thing that I was going to relate to what I had started to say a little while ago was he was in the U.S. Uh, miniseries called The Last Days of Pompeii, which was okay. unrelated to Kobuchi's movie from 1959. But I just thought it was kind of weird that he was in that... And then Corbucci had directed one in 59. You know what I mean? That is cool. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. He's done a lot of charity work with um, Don the Don Bosco Orphanage in Tivoli. He did get a knighthood uh, from the Italian Republic back in, uh, I think it was 2011. And oh, nice. Yeah. He, he's still doing stuff. I mean, he, obviously he showed up in, like you said, in Django Unchained, which I remember like... Like, almost jumping out of my chair in the theater when I saw him. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, and if you look at his Internet Movie Database, which sometimes cannot be trusted, but if you look at his Internet Movie Database, there's, what, at least 10, 12 movies listed here that are in various stages of production that he's involved with right now. Wow. Either post-production, pre-production, announced, whatever. That's crazy. Um, for a few years now, and I don't know how likely it's going to happen at this point because it's been a few years, he was doing another Django film. I don't know if that's ever moved on from being announced or in pre-production, but it's called Django Lives, which I'd love to see because there were so many Django movies. Technically, there's only maybe two official Django films. Right, right. Out of the 30 that were made. I've seen some places say there are over 60 of them, and I'm sure there's probably even more that never made their way over here to the U.S., and it goes back to what we were talking about before. Let's just change the name because we know something's going to sell, whether it's a Frankenstein kaiju film or we put the five deadly venoms in a title because, well, you know, that's what's sold. That's what happened with these movies. They put Django in so many titles. And if it wasn't Django, it was something that rhymed with Django, like Shango or Kamango. You right, know? right. So... <laughs> oh, my God. I got... But it worked. <laughs> like I was saying to you the other day, you know, doing um, Monster Kid Radio, you're going to be doing it for another 50 years. But, you know, between the Django movies, the Ringo movies, the Sartana movies, it's like, is this going to take me another 50 years just to get through all these? <laughs> <laughs> but that's awesome. There's so many movies out there to discover. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, this, that book that I mentioned, that Any Gun Can Play yes. book, it is quite the to- uh, tome. Uh, it's from Fab Press. And uh, I got to tell you, man, this is like the Bible when it comes to these movies. Oh, absolutely. So many titles in here that I've never even heard of, things that I keep meaning to look up, just go through this book and use it like a checklist. Absolutely. I have man, that these book. These are so cool. Every time I open it, it's to the picture of Raquel Welch from the movie she was in with uh, Burt Reynolds there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's not. So 100... why does that? Why does that book always open to that page? I don't know. Roger? It's really weird. <laughs> My wife asked me the same question. <laughs> but um, real quickly on the rest of the cast, we got Loredana Nushiak. She was Maria. Um, she was in about 29 films, and really the only one that I recognized was $10,000 for a Massacre. Um, nothing. I don't think there's anything else that American audiences would have heard of. Um, Eduardo Fajardo. Oh, that guy. He was Angel. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. That was Major Jackson. He Yes. He was in 234 films. Can you imagine that? And the best film of his entire career is 1967's Argo Man, the Fantastic Superman. Yes! Oh my God, I have that. (laughs) I love Argo Man so much. That is something that I discovered working for this film company. Uh, Man, I love Argo Man so much. Uh, He plays the butler, uh, Chandra, in that. Oh man, totally different kind of character than what he did in Django. Right, right. No, he's he's a despicable person in this film. I mean, it's some of the things that he does to Mexican captives is just terrible. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I kind of skipped over that a little bit. Um, That's all right, because it's uncomfortable, man. <laughs> yeah, it's you know what the, the audience should just go and watch the movie and judge for themselves. So when you, um, when you were younger, when did you first just sort of discover spaghetti westerns? I don't recall if you went over that already. Yeah, no, so. I first, I'm like, I knew what they were and I knew what Westerns were, but I grew up not really caring about them. It wasn't until uh, 
I started taking this, these video production courses in uh, community college and I was able to use a video that I made for my video production course in an English course and, you know, or excuse me, a humanities course, we were asked to kind of share some art or whatever. And I brought in a video and showed them my little mini movie or whatever. And we're talking about movies and why I love them so much. And I made this throwaway comment that I like all movies. Well, except Westerns. I don't really care about Westerns. And a guy came, sought me out after class and said, you know, you probably don't, don't discount Westerns. There are some really interesting stories when it comes to Westerns. And that got me thinking that, you know, I've been kind of closing that part off. Maybe I should really start exploring them. And I did. Now, of course, I started with the the Dollars trilogy, right? The Clint right. Eastwood films. But back then, there weren't a lot of other spaghetti Westerns out there to explore available on VHS, which was the medium at the time. It wasn't until a few years later that I started learning more about like Django and some of these other movies. And I'd say probably within the past 15 years or so, I've really gotten into them at that point. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I was always a John Wayne fan because my grandmother was. She was a huge oh, okay. John Wayne okay. and Elvis fan. And for God's sakes, when both of those gentlemen passed away, she cried for two days for each of them. And oh, wow. I never forgot. But I always noticed on TV, I'd watch one with Lee Van Cleef or something, and I knew there was something not right. Maybe it was because the dubbing was off, or I knew there was a different but i really didn't know it probably till my 20s where i started to investigate movies further maybe from psychotronic magazine or something i don't know but it was one sure. of those things that i just growing up i knew there was a different kind of western out there and to me lee van cleef was the master ninja from the tv show you know from the 80s <laughs> so <laughs> when i saw him as a bad guy hey for me he was the guy in for me, he was the guy in Escape from New York. Oh, so. there you go. Yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing before we finish this, I just wanted to mention the composer. You had mentioned him, uh, Luis Enriquez Bacalov. Oh, 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 my God. Yeah. Oh, so good. <sighs> he was just, an, he was an, actually, he was Argentine Italian and made tons of film scores. Um, he did spaghetti westerns uh, early in his career. He collaborated with uh, Italian progressive rock bands in the early 70s. He was nominated twice for the Academy Award for Best Original Score, and I think he won it in 96 for Il Postino. Um, hmm. I'm pretty sure that's that's what he won it for. And um, he was, before he died, he was the artistic orchestra, I'm sorry, the artistic director of the orchestra. Orchestra della Magna Grisia in Taranto, Italy. But that right theme, on. that theme song from Django, I haven't been able to get out of my head for probably the past two months since I started thinking about this podcast. Dude, I can't get it out of my head at all. I it's <laughs> it's iconic, man. It tells you everything you need to know about the story and the character. I mean, it's all right there, and that's something that a lot of the spaghetti westerns did have this opening credit music that told a story. It had lyrics and all that, and tell you what's right. going on. Um, but he did it the best. I, yeah. I, I think I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I love Sergio Leone. You know, I love that stuff. Or, excuse me. I love Ennio Morricone. I love his music, right? But yeah. Bakalov is my favorite when it comes to the spaghetti Western music. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I have to agree with you because it's just his stuff is just so amazing. I mean, Morricone did a lot of interesting stuff with things that weren't even musical instruments. But this guy, he just sort of, I don't know, I, I can't put my finger on it, but that theme song, man, 
just like you said, can't get it out of my head. And that's a good thing. <laughs> In yeah. a good way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, so such a great film. Such great music. Awesome. Well, um, Derek, thank you so much for being on episode two of The East Meets the West. Had a fun time talking to you about these movies, and hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon. I would love to do that. Thank you for having me on here. You know, I could go on and on and on about spaghetti westerns, and this is kind of scratching an itch that I've had for a long time, and that's talking about these types of movies on a podcast. So thank you for this opportunity. It means a lot. Listeners, check out more spaghetti westerns and more Shaw Brothers. Check them all out. (laughs) And where can the listeners find you, Derek? Oh, monsterkidradio.net or monsterkidwriter.com or on YouTube or whatever. Just make sure you spell my last name right when you Google me and you'll find me. It's K-O-C-H. I'm all over the place. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Derek. Good talking to you. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Take care. Okay, thank you for joining us on episode two of The East Meets the West. Special thank you goes out to Mr. Derek M. Cook for co-hosting the show with me today. I hope you had fun. Um, I hope you actually get a chance to see these movies and enjoy them. They're really spectacular. They're different than what you're probably used to with Hollywood films. And um, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I think you should really check them out. So uh, just to wrap up here, uh, we can be found, uh, first of all, uh, The East Meets the West can be found on pretty much every podcasting app, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all of those things. You can also find out more about us and our sister podcast, Then Is Now, and you can find out about us at havenpodcasts.com. That's havenpodcast, plural, havenpodcasts.com. You can also email us if you want to comment on this episode at theeastmeetsthewest at gmail.com. And uh, we've got a voicemail if you want to leave us a message that we can play back on a show. Our number is 978-432-9079. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
sun.